Hello, you're listening to an e-assessment association podcast. Welcome to the Assessment Association podcast. Um, this is part two of our remote assessment series. So we had a panel session at BET UK. We pulled together a panel of experts and we debated all sorts of different aspects of uh, remote assessment. So uh, candidates' uh, experience, accessibility, the user journey and that was in part one, so go back and watch that if you've not listened to it already. This is part two, where we pull together a different group um, to talk about some other aspects. Um, so looking at the candidate experience, um, the psychometrics, the security around assessment, uh, the role of AI, um, and you know the, the role of accreditation uh, bodies in the process. So uh, sit back and enjoy this second podcast. <laughs> So hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Tim Burnett and welcome to the second part of our conversation about remote assessment. Um, and it's weird this one because I've actually got here with me now the panel that was originally going to take part in the bet should it have taken place in, in January. So uh, welcome everyone here. We've got David, we've got Rory, Tim and Paul. Um, I'm going to ask you to do some brief introductions, but um, you know, we've we've for those that have listened before, we've we've got a first part that's come out with uh, the panel that actually did come to Tibet, and David was actually there as part of that as well. So thank you, David, for being the continuity on that one. Um, and now we're talking, uh, going to wind in the conversation with uh, these very talented people who work within the assessment space. So let's go around and do some brief introductions. Uh, David, do you want to start off? Thanks, Tim. My name is David Redden. I work for NCFE. We are an educational charity and award organisation who uses remote invigilation for a series of English, math and ICT assessments. Fantastic. And uh, thank you for that, Rory. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Rory McCorkle, I work for PSI Services as their uh, Senior Vice President of Global Business Development and Client Success. And really what that means is that I oversee the work uh, that we do with uh, credentialing qualifications clients globally, as well as uh, the examinations that uh, we provide directly out into the market as well. Excellent. Thank you for that, Rory. Uh, Tim Downey, do you want to go next? Hi, thanks, Tim. Um, so I'm working with Tarview as director of their proctoring business to help them uh, scale that up around the global markets. Um, I've been in the tech industry uh, about 25 years in assessment for 15 and a board member of the EAA as well. Excellent, thank you. And we we sound quite different, Tim, don't we? So I don't think too many people are going to get as confused with the teams that are speaking on here today. Thank you for that, Paul. Hi, Tim. Yeah, I'm Paul Muir from the British Council, head of technology enabled assessment. Um, yeah, I've been in, in assessment education for 23 years this year, which is how I now start feeling really old when I say that <laughs> in the calendars. Um, and I'm responsible for our technology enabled assessment delivery around the world. So things including remote proctoring, computer delivered testing, that type of thing. So thanks, good and good to be here. Excellent. Thank you. I think we're all feeling pretty old in our um, kind of uh, history of working in the assessment space. We're going to come on to kind of a bit of a few questions about uh, your organization's role within a remote proctoring. Uh, um, and I suppose just to start this off, yeah, we will be talking about remote proctoring, online proctoring, remote invigilation. Um, there's a whole host of different names that this comes with. So please do listen there if you if you hear a slight variation. We are all talking about the same thing. Web cameras monitoring people taking exams in remote locations. We're going to talk a bit more about uh, the kind of future as well. Um, I'm going to ask these gentlemen to kind of uh, give me some uh, predictions as to how they see uh, assessment modernizing over time and how 
remote proctoring uh, will have an influence on that. But let's just start off by uh, just picking up from one of the conversation topics from the first part of this um, webinar series, um, talking about the candidates, really. So there's two aspects we want to look at, it's just about the, the voice of the candidates. But the first one, I suppose, is do, does anyone feel that their candidates see remotely invigilated examinations in their own home as being higher or lower stakes? You know, has that influenced uh, anyone's uh, thinking on that? So let's open that out. Has anyone got any views on that? Yes, yeah, um, it's been an interesting one because what we've seen is for English exams particularly, learners are a lot more relaxed, a lot more engaged with the topics. We've actually seen the achievement of those learners go up using remote invigilated assessments rather than the more traditional paper-based or online assessment. However, the alternative for maths, when, when learners are using maths, what we're seeing is, is, is more undue tactics, more, more attempts to, to, to cheat, cheat the system and a poor achievement rate. And I think it probably depending on the assessments that are taken and how learners respond to this. And I think uh, a more relaxed environment, it, it increases could increase its performance, but when, when it's a tougher subject where they probably get a bit more support in a, a real world situation, I think they struggle a bit more and, and, and take it a, a bit more chance on it. Okay, that's interesting. Any, any other thoughts, Rory? Yeah, yeah Tim. I you know, I think this subject of of stakes, especially when we're talking about remotely invigilated exams, is almost um, it it really is more of a testing industry centric question, right? It's, mm. it's not a candidate centric question. In that, if um, if I'm in university and I'm I'm going through my course, and indeed uh, a particular test is what's standing in between me and successful completion of that course, you better believe that that exam is going to be pretty much one of the highest stakes things in my world, right? So not to say that that's, uh, uh, you know, equivalent to, um, you know, an individual uh, taking their examination to be uh, qualified or licensed as a medical practitioner, for example, but um, I, I do think it lacks that candidate context in that for them, what we might view as a lower stakes test may be absolutely the high stakes thing that they're dealing with or have dealt with in their life so far. So. Um, you know, really, as it pertains to the differential between uh, taking in a paper-based test in a, in a classroom or in a center, a computer-based test, a remotely invigilated test, um, I, I think it all is really based upon that test-taker context and what it means to them as it mm -hmm. pertains to their educational achievement or their professional achievement. So. Um, I would say in general, no, uh, uh, really the, the methodology for delivery uh, doesn't so much trigger that differential of stakes as it does the context in, in their arc, uh, whether that be educational or professional. Okay, that's interesting. Any other kind of views on that one? Any other thoughts? Um, Tim Downey, do you want to? Yeah, I think just picking up on both David and, and Rory's points, really, I think I've been really struck. I'm, I'm a governor at... Um, at one of our local secondary schools and one of the things we've been talking about in the school context is um, how students are suffering from anxiety going back into exam halls having been mm. out of exam halls you know the generation taking a levels this year haven't taken a public exam at, at all in many cases so the stress of going into that very formal setting will inevitably have a disproportionate impact upon some students compared to others and i think it, it's one of the interesting 
aspects of the pandemic, which is, you know, how do we ensure that candidates are comfortable in where they take the the exam? Um, and, and what different settings, what impact do different settings have upon different students? And I think it's something that's a conversation that kind of needs to be had. We're not going to snap straight back into um, the model that we had before, but where some students are afraid of exam hall settings, others find taking exam at home deeply stressful as well because of the environment at home and the conditions. So I think it's it's a really, I think it's a really interesting question. I think if you substitute the word high, high or low stakes to to stress, high or low stress, you'd get different answers from different candidates. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It's, 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 as Rory mentioned, it's kind of, it depends, it's very much on, on that, that candidate's own personal perspective. I, I often think back to GCSEs and things like that now and think, no, I didn't, I didn't need that. I was, why was I stressed about that? It didn't matter too much, but at the time it was a significant thing. Paul, you're going to just chip in some thoughts on that. It was, I think I'd pick up on Tim's point there around um, equity as well. I think that's really important for us at the British Council is how does remote proctoring become that uh, another pathway to to you know to achieving what you want to do and you know, to Rory's point you know it, that exam whether it's the English language test whether it's a um, you know part of a master's degree whether it's you know a, a really simple um, you know diagnostic test for example at that point in time it's the most important thing to them um, but I think also the candidates are influenced by what the media is saying as well so remote proctoring potentially and this is based on it's not based on any truths obviously as we know but the idea of you know doing an exam in your pajamas at home people have that perception then because of that they think well it's not as important because you haven't made the effort yeah so you know because you're not going to an exam hall you're not you haven't got those people but actually once you as we all know once you get into that remote proctoring process for a candidate you're still checking people's ids you're probably checking more things around the room than you ever would do in a test center so it becomes actually to me, it is it is as high stakes and as an exam as anything in a test centre. It's different, but it's not it's not it's not lower stakes because of its remote proctor in in no way at all. Okay, let's let's kind of talk a bit more about um, candidates themselves. So obviously, we're all industry experts working in the space. Um, how do we gain this this voice from the candidates? So if, have you guys done any research with your candidates that um, that's kind of uncovered their their, their feelings, their perceptions around uh, assessment. Maybe Rory, is there anything that PSI's done today? Yeah, we've done uh, several different, let's say, rounds of conversations um, with with candidates. Um, in most cases, of course, in conjunction with uh, our clients, and and really taking that approach to determine from them, you know, what was. What was the experience like? What worked well? What did they not appreciate in the process? And and bring that uh, candidate-facing view back to our product uh, development roadmap uh, for our remote invigilation solution, as well as to uh, really to our team uh, as it pertains to the proctors, the tech support representatives, the auditors, all of this uh, you know stack of personnel that's required. Um, and it has been really interesting to hear that vantage point from a from a few different uh, in, in a few different ways. Excuse me. Um, I think by and large, one of the thing that one of the things that has really resonated with candidates is uh, ensuring and emphasizing the human based approach uh, to remote invigilation. Um, I know that. Uh, of course, there's been a lot of conversation about, uh, you know, technology, AI, and, and, and how that interacts in technology. And, uh, you know, one of the things that has been central to our particular approach 
right, wrong, or otherwise, um, really has been uh, the uh, the human centric approach that they're talking to a real person on the other end, yeah. and uh, and how much that's resonated. Um, I think it's also been uh, we've we've heard well, uh, you know, the various methods and and clearly communicating the ways in which they can get help. And doing so through a variety of different channels, a variety of different communication channels, ranging from you know your standard uh, uh, candidate handbook or or bulletin to uh, little TikTok esque style videos that get put out to you know really cover elements of the process and how much that's resonated. Um, but of course, we've also heard uh, some great feedback on on things that have not. Uh, gone well or have been disjunctive mm. and in fact have used those to directly spur um, some changes to the product. For example, um, you know, one of the one of the most uh, intensive areas of the remote invigilation process, and actually, Paul, you mentioned this a moment ago, uh, is just that check-in process, in particular, the validation of one's environment. Um, people aren't used to thinking about preparing a room for that kind of experience. It's it's a very foreign concept to most people unless they've actually gone through the experience before. So um, we were really able to engage in some discussions with candidates that led us to break that process down a bit um, so that, for example, instead of taking one very lengthy video of, of the room scan of their environment, it's broken down into a variety of different aspects um, so that they're not constantly having to redo that. So again, all of this being in the spirit of CQI and uh, just trying to smooth out that journey while also looking, uh, you know, in the uh, best interest of, of security on, on behalf of our clients. So those conversations have been extraordinarily helpful. Um, and from my vantage point, you know, they, they need to continue as a, as, as a, a focus on, on making evolution in a, in a continual manner. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I just want to remind you that the eAssessment Association's conference is taking place on the 21st and 22nd of June. Uh, this is in London uh, by the uh, famous Tower Bridge. Uh, we're going to have some fantastic keynote speakers. Uh, the conference itself is very kindly sponsored by PSI. There'll be an exhibition area, interactive lab, and then on the evening of the 21st, we have the uh, awards gala dinner where we'll be giving out some fantastic awards to some very uh, well-deserved organisations that have submitted uh, some fantastic innovative assessment projects. Um, the awards itself is very kindly sponsored by the British Council. So come and join us in London, 21st and 22nd for the conference and awards. Back to the podcast. Yeah, and I think as as a as a provider as the of the of the platform and the technology, having that feedback helps you refine the technology to make it a smoother uh, process. Tim, do you want to kind of add, add your views on that? Yeah, it, it was just really to say I think it's important that we don't lose the relationship between the qualification provider and the candidate in this as well, that, that you look at kind of the university context and workplace context, often these the test takes a known to the organisations issuing the exam. So, so, you know, keeping the element of trust and the element of um, relationship there, such that it does become so intrusive that you're trying to treat them like strangers, but actually being, being supportive of the candidate experiences is crucial as well yeah i think i think 
you know, we have to we have to keep listening into them. And I think one of the challenges with this whole process, if you're not, if you don't have a good ongoing relationship with the, with the candidates, you're not going to get that um, feedback uh, directly from them. David, you've got quite strong relationships with the candidates. I mean, what's the, what's the kind of voice and what have you been doing to, to kind of listen to what they've had to say about this? Definitely. Um, a lot of our, our learners are doing apprenticeships. So that involves working in, in, a, in a job and then having to do their studies around their, their work roles. So one of the things that we decided when we introduced uh, remote invigilation was to make it as flexible as possible. So we use the record and review method. That means that learners can book assessments at any point, any time of the day or, or evening or even weekends. And the feedback we get from learners is this is so beneficial because We've got a lot of healthcare workers in NHS, so they work shifts. So the traditional method of, of going into a test centre mm. on a Wednesday afternoon at 3pm just doesn't work for them. It, it creates stress for getting to the test centre, for finding cover on the shift, for being able to just fit, fit it in in their normal lifetime. So what we're seeing now is you know people can book an assessment within a 42-day window. They can sit at any point. So if they plan, say, tonight, I, I was in my, my maths exam tonight, I've had a, a tough day at work. I've been grilled by Tim on, on the podcast. and uh, <laughs> it, it, It's been a stressful experience to get home. I've got young children. They're, they're running around wild. All I want to do by 7 o'clock is sit down and just relax. I don't want to sit in a two-hour maths exam. It doesn't yeah. matter. I can, I, can, I can try again the following day when I'm in a more relaxed frame of mind, in a, a better mental place. We've touched on you know, mental health before, it's, it's, it's a big thing with assessment these days with learners. And, I, you know, I, I like that. I, I love the idea that you know, by having that wide open window, you yeah. you test when you're ready. I know, it, unfortunately, you know, when you've got a live proctor sitting waiting and those kind of things, and you know, if, if that's part of the spec for the organisation to have that person scheduled to be there, it can be a little bit confining. But is that a live proctor test then or is that recording review it's recording review so from the candidate's point of view they, they just sit the assessment no one there's often a help help chat box for any technical issues but it's yeah. recorded we monitor it and we, it's all got the same valid validity with a quality check afterwards uh so you know, it, it's all all checked through, but the learner doesn't have anyone physically sitting there, so they can just sit the assessment as and when. And like I say, mental health as well. The the, the stress of even being on on camera with someone they don't know sitting there watching them can be quite a stressful experience for them. So yeah. removing all that, you're in a secure area. You're sitting at an assessment when you're confident to sit it, not just when you're being forced to sit it. it it's such a, a beneficial thing and we've had a lot of later feedback saying that that approach has been so much beneficial for them, made them actually and I don't think you can ever look forward to a math exam, but uh, <laughs> actually be a lot more better frame of mind and feel that they did a lot better because of that environment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Paul, what's been your kind of candidate connections um, and responses? Um, everything we've done so far has been live. So we've we've slightly different from David. We've we've done the live proctoring. So we you know our our, our proctors are dealing directly with those candidates. Um, and the main thing for us is preparation. So where we see candidates or the system or the process maybe not working as well as candidates or the um, test providers 
would hope is that candidates don't follow those instructions. So the things that Roy mentioned about, you know, mm. whether it was through TikTok, which obviously is moving to the younger generation, us old people on this on this call now, or um, TikTok Tim, other... check out my account. You need, to, you need to. Well, actually, don't go to that one. I don't know if that's any good. So just warn that one. It's not actually my um, account. Go on, but I think that's the thing. I think that the main thing for us is it's it's that preparation. So if a candidate's coming into that. They need to make sure that that room is right. They need to make sure they've read the instructions that does their machine meet the technical spec. If you do all those things, the experience is going to be really straightforward and it yeah. should be really not, uh, pleasurable is never the word. I think as David was saying, no one wants to do an exam, but it reduces the stress as much as you can. You know that, whereas in a test center, obviously, we have the opposite thing where you walk into a test center and you expect everything to be ready for you. And you, you sort of just walk in, you know, you show your ID, you sit down and everything happens. Um, there's also stuff it's different for remote proctoring but yeah preparation is the key for us and that's the thing we have with our candidates is you don't see failure in the technology normally from the proctoring software side you don't normally see failure in the hub but that candidate the failure at the local point with the with the candidate tends to be it and, and it's how you deal with that loss of connectivity how you manage that how you tell about what would happen before that even happens you know if you mm -hmm. do lose it this is what will happen you know how you can come back to it and to david's point again how you provide that technical support and support throughout so remote proctoring isn't a, a lesser option it isn't a less supported option it's it's a very very good high stakes low stakes medium stakes option that um with the right preparation will really be a really good exam experience and i think the lesson there is that things like email communication about technical uh, checks and things like that they're all important but don't just assume that someone has read them and also don't assume that everyone is having the same day that you are uh, when it comes to the examination is it we talked about stress rory do you want to kind of chip in a bit more on that well and and i just want to double down on the statement right uh, I, I go back to the old adage uh, and tim you know as a as a marketer you know this well right how many exposures does it take for somebody to really get your message right that old kind of rule of seven which yeah. indeed we think has actually gone up now in the digital age we got to use the same assumption with our candidates uh and indeed not in, in not assuming that they're going to read an email not assuming that they're going to read a bulletin not assuming they're going to read a video and, and really ensuring that we're working across those channels because yeah. indeed um you know there is just a lot that we ask of them uh, uh in this experience as well as uh the statement about you know, you don't know how or where you're catching someone because indeed you're catching them most, most, much closer to their quote unquote normal life than if they've actually gotten up, driven from their home and, and gone out to an exam hall or a test center, what have you. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, it can be, it can be so different for everyone, can't it? So, and don't just assume, yeah, that everyone has seen one form of communication. So let's uh, let's go around the table now, and just kind of just so people fill in the gaps a little bit as to um, how your organisations have been um, using it. So, so David, uh, we'll go with yourself first. You, you, you've kind of touched on you kind of been using record and review. Do you want to just add a bit more about how um, NCFE has engaged with uh, remote proctoring and um, I suppose if you can give us like a key uh, lessons learned from from your experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, we we came to remote invigilation during the pandemic. Just ironically, just before the pandemic broke, we were starting to investigate, looking into this this area, 
um, in, in looking to a pilot, but it accelerated quite quickly once the pandemic hit. And, Very quickly, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, an assessment couldn't be accessed. So we went, we reached out to schools, colleges, train providers, and, and tried to understand the need, how things have, have changed, what what the, the requirements were for the, from their side of things. We did a, a lot of work and we, 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 we refrain from rushing into this because recognize this was a big culture shift certainly in the uk in terms of this this style of assessments how they are used so we did an extensive pilot that lasted four or five months the, the pilot actually lasted done from internal to just a few small numbers of, of, of schools and colleges to then branching out and on a larger scale and with that, we did a lot of interaction with the learners themselves, with the, the teachers, and, and, and the centres at a higher level to understand how that was going. Because just as we touched on before, you know, the preparation, the mistake you make is that because it's digital, it, it, it's easier, but mm. you've still got to do that preparation you would do for a paper-based exam. You've still got to talk the learner through exactly what to go and experience and, and understand that. So from there, we... we, we use remote invigilation for, uh, for English maths functional skills and ICT and also for endpoint assessment as part of the apprenticeship there's mm. a lot of uh, multiple choice and professional discussion um record and review was, was the approach we, we went for straight away just because of the nature of our learners the flexibility that we could provide them it was just a massive value what we do find and, and we've done explore more now live invigilation is that some learners do actually want someone at the end of the camera supporting mm. them and, and guiding them because you know having that instruction of, of doing the scan around the room providing ideas if something is missed through that on record review it can be quite challenging from an administration point of view to retrospectively get that data but certainly going through 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 that um it's it been a success learners of, of, of thousands and thousands of learners have achieved where they wouldn't have i think lessons learned i think it probably having more options because it's not a one size fits all and mm. i think it's accepting that that you know there's not some magical fix here with remote invigilation it's a solution that can solve a problem for a lot of learners but maybe not all but just varying the, the different styles, like I say, recording feels really well, but some live invigilation, I think we were stayed away from that. And in, in, in hindsight, we probably should have embraced that early on as well and combined the two. I think some organisations didn't really have the, the choice. I think, Rory, you, if you could kind of give your kind of take on it as well, but um, just also be interested to hear your atlantic american view because i know a lot of the accreditation bodies were very much set on live weren't they as well so tell us a bit more about psi's kind of rolling and what you know any of the kind of lessons that you've learned as part of the journey yeah sure and um, i mean it's it has been uh, an absolutely fascinating journey to say the least because uh you know psi has had an emphasis since even before um uh, prior to uh, the COVID crisis, um, we were talking about the importance of uh, remote invigilation and, and multimodal assessment. And of course, as you can imagine, the number of years um, that might have been uh, interested in uh, uh, listening to such a message were, were not quite as numerous mm -hmm. as there have been since. Um, but uh, it's it's something that we've been talking about for, for a number of years now. Um, 
we do, uh, you know, we do offer uh, the array of modalities. Uh, aside from automated, um, we do offer both live and record and review. And and of course, we've seen that, you know, also completely evolve. You know, traditionally, that record and review offering has very much been in higher education, in the university space. Um, and Tim, to your point, live remote proctoring being used far more with uh, qualifications uh, or credentialing bodies. Um, and uh, that has also uh, turned on its head a little bit. Very interestingly, uh, I think more so in uh, uh, in the UK and the EU, actually, uh, we've seen a lot more openness to the uh, array of methods than we have in the US, where uh, very much here there is still the uh, vantage point of live remote invigilation being more uh, appropriate. Uh, if you will, for certification and licensure. But do, do, just on that one, very quickly, is that because in America the accreditation bodies generally set the the tone and said live is the is the, the only route, and a lot of people took emphasis off that. Whereas in the UK, the regulators kind of were very open, saying do what you want to do, but be prepared to justify yourself. Do you think that's been the, the influence there? Indeed, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head there, Tim. That's that's exactly the motivation, and it's been mm. uh, again, it's been very interesting for me, given the amount of time I spend on both sides of the pond, as it were, um, uh, to kind of see that play out in discussions. Uh, but that really has been um, has been the motivation, um, as well as you know going along with that. Um, you know, let's be candid too. I mean, the backlash being so much heavier here against any kind of technology mm. first method um, as an outgrowth of, of everything that occurred um, in the summer two years ago um, that really did cause a backlash against, uh, you know, AI technologies such as facial recognition. But, um, you know, really in terms of the lessons learned and, and you know, remote invigilation being a, a central element of PSI solution for, for so long, um, we like, many, many, many other providers. I mean, obviously we went through quite a transformation, um, growing in terms of our volume by about 12 X, uh, in 2020. So that, uh, completely reshaped, uh, some of our landscape because now we had a lot more data to play with when mm. it came to looking at the candidate journey, looking at enhancements, um, back to the previous question, getting that feedback from candidates. Um, we just had a lot more to be able to gather. Um, but the the two biggest lessons learned and takeaways uh, that I really uh, ha have enjoyed, I suppose, is is number one, in alignment with the conversation that we just had around communication, it has really recentered a lot of testing organizations on the candidate and their journey. Mm -hmm. It's forced us to be very conscious about thinking. Uh, on their experience and trying to put ourselves in their shoes, which um, as, as much as I wish I could say that has been the case consistently throughout our history, I don't think so. I, I think we've we've really had an attitude historically in some ways of this is the way it is, take it or leave it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that refocus on the candidate um, experience and journey has for me led to some really exciting opportunities where we all can take a step back and look at that journey, not just as it pertains to remote invigilation and that delivery piece, but indeed the whole process, soup to nuts, and and how does that work? Um, how, uh, you know, what preconceptions do candidates come into that journey with? 
Hmm. Um, how do things like Web 2.0 and 3.0 now uh, weigh into that? And, and how can we res be responsive to those expectations so that as they interact with us, we're being conscious about those, you know, that candidate convenience element that indeed has become so centric um, to all of our cultures post COVID. Um, and again, I think it's most especially spurred by the growth of remote invigilation because of the additional ask that we make of them. We're not just asking them to show up with their ID and hopefully uh, their brain, um, yes. <laughs> but indeed we're asking so much more of them to come with, whether it's that private room, whether that is a the right laptop, hardware, software, yeah. the right internet connection, which of course uh, is the bane of all of our existence and, and just really ensure that all of those expectations and needs are clearly communicated. Yeah, excellent. And, and talking of uh, internet connections, Tim, hopefully you can hear us. I know we've had a little bit of difficulty. Um, to, do you want to just explain Talviews? Uh, thank you for that, Rory. Do you want, Tim, do you want to explain Talviews kind of um, role in all this and the lessons that you've learned along the route? Yeah, so Talview provides kind of live uh, proctoring, recording review, and AI, as well as secure browsers for candidates to take exams in different settings. So very much that kind of end-to-end -end, uh, proposition. And the other interesting feature, I think, is um, also enables users to use their own proctors. So where you have, um, you know, candidates who need specific expertise in proctoring or, for example, observational assessment in um, in a medical setting, for example, or candidates with special needs who might want to have a, a familiar face in the proctoring. It, it's just mm -hmm. kind of thinking about that candidate experience and um, how that can support the test taker. Um, and I guess, interestingly, part of the kind of Talview background is working in the uh, HR tech, so the recruitment and employment space. Um, and obviously, you know, alongside the pandemic affecting assessment, there's also got the kind of the great resignation that's happening in the States and, and elsewhere where people are moving jobs at very rapid rate of knots. Um, and that's put a lot of emphasis upon the candidate, the experience for the candidate, the speed of the process, the effectiveness of the process. And I think those kind of crossover uh, learnings have been quite, quite interesting. So I think, you know, you probably spotted a theme on those bits when you can hear me, but I think technology is only only part of this. How it works with the candidate and how it ensures a fair and valid system are the absolute kind of kind of silken knots through this this system that we need to uh, keep an eye on because because it's all about building an ecosystem that works for all all stakeholders within the process. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting you said about the yeah there is that there is a massive change in expectations. And Paul, you know, the whole theme of the ATP conference last year was navigating new expectations, wasn't it? It was the, the kind of shift on the on the on candidate. Um, and you will have experienced this on a global scale as well. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your kind of role in this and the lessons you've learned? Yeah, um, thanks, Tim. Yeah, so obviously the British Council we work in one hundred and. 140 countries or something I think it is and um, a lot of our volume it tends to be in the countries where technology is maybe more of a challenge um, so traditionally we've been the test centers we've been doing you know doing face-to-face -face examinations face-to-face -face assessments and obviously in well, for March 2020 for us or early 2020 for obviously parts of the world that changed rapidly as, a, as the other, others have said as well um, so we had to rapidly pivot to remote proctoring we've been talking about it for years we've been talking to some of our clients for a number of years and I think a lot of our clients in the UK have tended to be this high stakes exam side of things and they've been very risk averse they've looked, looked at remote proctoring with a bit of suspicion I think we've touched on that already mm. earlier on 
and thought, is that really for us? And all of a sudden in March 2020, it was for them, surprisingly. It was a case of do it or don't do an assessment. So um, we rapidly sort of developed a solutions with some partners. We, British Council, we, we're a technology, technology agnostic. We don't have our own remote proctoring technology solution. We work with partners. Um, and what we then do is we provide the proctoring to that. So what was Tim was just saying with Talview, um, Talview was one of the British Council partners on one of our frameworks. Um, and along with Talview and other, other um, remote proctoring solutions, we provide the proctors. So we set up very rapidly five global proctoring hubs around the world, um, different time zones, um, India, Malaysia, Dubai, Trinidad, and the UK initially, and we've moved those around a bit, but um, four of them have stayed and we've introduced things like Russian language. Um, we're looking at Arabic, we're looking at Spanish and German. So um, we've got all of those, we've sort of developed a really quite rapidly, I guess, for the for us and for the British Council, for some of us, something very, very quick, which has scaled up very quickly as well. Um, so, so, so two years later, it's very much like a business as usual um, for us now. And every, I think every discussion we have with clients or future clients or, um, just people at conferences, almost the first question now is remote proctoring, whereas before it would have been about would have been about test center delivery and other things. But now it's it's flipped. It's now what what can you do with remote proctoring and how can you how does that fit in with them? Um, I think Rory, I think you called it multimodal or hybrid. I think whichever word is used around around the sector now, um, that's always the starting point now. Yeah, it it definitely is the, the kind of the first point of conversation. It's interesting that you're using four and you've got those multiple hubs and things like that as part of the, the setup. How 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 quickly did the British Council kind of adopt the the process? Because I imagine a very large organisation, it's you know, decision making um, can't be that swift. Uh, I would imagine. It's almost like you've met a government department before. But, you know, <laughs> decision making doesn't happen very quickly in governments. Um, actually, it was astonishing. So we went from one of our clients saying we need to deliver exams to having a solution run up and running within. I think it was just under six weeks. Yeah. Um, so we had to move quickly, and we did, and we're really pleased with what that did. And was, we've we've developed that over over the months and over the years to to get better and better. But yeah, we had something up and running that could deliver high states exams within six weeks with one of our partners. So. Um, we're very pleased with that but again it, it is a struggle and it's not just our decision making it's it's traditionally i think in um rory i think you were mentioning about the use of ai and proctoring there's suspicion around that as well still one of the lessons we've learned is that in the european commission we talked about this at atp actually we had a whole session about is ai friend or foe yeah. and um you know something like the european commission are saying actually how can you use ai where does that data go what's it being used for you know there's sort of definitely very big do's and don'ts now around that and that is affecting how remote proctoring is going to be um, delivered in the future because can you use ai on um you know looking at ids you know can ai look at your id hold it up to the camera could it go away and have a look at something else could it look at your face can it compare it to a database and if it's doing that where is that data then being used and where's it being stored and so i think in the last two years i think we've all had a a really good it's it's it, it, um it's exploded you know we've always said that 12 times for psi the volume's gone up but i think now there's people regulators whether it's regulators from a qualification perspective or regulations from a data perspective are now looking at it and going so for two years we've sort of done what you want to do and now we're starting to say now they're starting to look at it a lot more closely saying well you've got you've got a free pass during the pandemic almost but now actually mm -hmm. what we're going to do and how you're going how we're going to look at this how we're going to regulate it a bit more closely I think that's maybe the next big challenge for us. And our, our big lesson to learn is how do we manage that? And I think we're trying to do that through the ESS Association, through things like EATP, building those communities to actually 
let's not do this as let's not do this alone because it's the same challenge for all of us and yeah. how can we work together so that, that's one of the really big things i'm hoping to see in the next 12 months through eaa um members yeah we, we, and we need to navigate that rory do you just want to come in on that your thoughts on the ai side of things i think yeah i i i love that you brought this up paul um as well and and uh, you know of course this is such a contentious issue so I'll, I'll try to keep it brief but you know one of the things that i think uh continues to work against us on this front because truly i'm uh you know i would assert i'm not you know pro or or con ai uh but just the term the term has become so loaded mm um in uh, uh in our environment and i i think really trying to move to an approach where where we're actually talking about the underlying tech that we're using um for example the uh assessment industry has been using natural language processing with great success for automating some tasks for a decade and a half i i was i worked on a project actually with the uk university uh, uh, about 12, 13 years ago, we were looking at um, automated the crea uh, automating the creation of, of items, which, uh, you know, AIG, of course, another hot topic. Hmm. Um, yes, it's an AI technology, but uh, by talking about, you know, the specific technology that we're using, and of course, the ramifications associated with that particular uh, bit and bite, as it were, as opposed to, uh, you know, that overarching term, I, I think we do very much reposition the conversation um and take it out of being quite so emotionally loaded and and really into a discussion of of what that technology accomplishes and and whether it meets the goals that we're trying to use it for um so just as a as a follow-up and i know we'll be talking about this a little more i, I just had to get that in there now it's, it's it's a really quite to be honest we could have a whole session on ai couldn't we that, that that would be and there's some great people in the industry as well we can in, include in that um but um yeah it's it's such a massive massive thing um let's have a i've got a few kind of individual questions now for you just to kind of so we can unpick the future because obviously uh remote proctoring come along um you know at first we we're all kind of there was bits of dabbling going on with it people were kind of experimented with it and nobody was really truly embracing it properly there's a few programs that were using it but yeah, we've gone through that process. We've taken the revolution. It has the potential to change the shape of assessment um, because you you can't have a three hour long examination remote proctored where you can't take your face away from the screen and not have any breaks. It's you know those kind of things are just they're undesirable and it's just wrong. But there are other kind of things that have kind of come about. So um, Tim, I'm going to pick on you first, uh, if that's okay. What are what other opportunities do you see? for innovation and assessment um, now that we've kind of accepted remote proctoring a little bit we may have accepted ai a bit but do you think there's anything else that that can, in the ecosystem that can start to change yeah i, I mean i think it's a really interesting stage for the assessment industry because because i liken the move to to live proctoring you know as a replication of what, what happened in a test center in an exam hall it's a bit like in the days of Kind of automobiles that people wanted faster horses to start with and they ended up with cars that, that i think kind of live proctoring in many ways is a faster horse it's, it's a replication of what was not a perfect system already and i think as we start to evolve and as, as roy just described i think the use your know, assessments the assessment industry has generally been quite good at bringing technology in at kind of the right time and the right process so how we've seen it develop in item generation and candidate experience 
Um, I think we're now in that stage with proctoring where, you know, some of the benefits, for example, of um, recording review or AI proctoring is you have an artifact after the, the imagination process has taken place. You can go back, you can review it, you can look for bias, you can look for examples of bad practice. You can also get psychometric data. You can start to see, you know, at what point in an exam does a candidate have a more propensity to cheat? You know, what kind of questions drive cheating behavior? You know, what subjects link that? I think that for psychometricians is absolute gold dust in terms of understanding the candidate process through through the proctoring. And I think it's no surprise that as, as exams moved online quickly, some of the most innovative examples of technology in the assessment industry are around the start of that process, the test development item creation process. So uh, I'm, I'm a judge this year on the EAA Awards, and I think you know you guys are as well. I think I've been struck by just how innovative some of those awards have been. I'm, I'm part of the innovative use of technology, so inevitably I, I see that. But um, yeah. But people looking at... You know, how can you make better tests? How can you make assessment more effective? How can you broaden the scope of what can be assessed? So looking at things like observational assessment in different settings, you know, the clinical settings have been there for a long time. So I think I think we're at the beginning of a very disruptive and very innovative time in the assessment industry. And I think we'll look back at the move to live proctoring as being the beginning of an acceptance that you could take exams online and still have confidence in their validity. And I think as that confidence builds, it'll enable um, innovation and disruption to come in other parts of the ecosystem that previously were more more sacrosanct and have been stuck for quite a long time in the same same model. That's, 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 that's interesting. So hopefully it's going to spur us on. David, you, you've got something to say on this. Yeah, sure. And just following on from Tim, and something that Paul touched on as well is obviously at first there was suspicion certainly from regulatory bodies around remote invigilation and assessment innovation at all but now that we've come out of the pandemic right, technically come out of the pandemic Feels um, like that, maybe. <laughs> but um regulators are now trying to look look towards us like what else are you going to do how are you going to support and they need ncfe we've created the assessment innovation fund and what we're starting to look at now linking in what tim was saying is we're funding seeds and new innovative ideas and assessment you know different ways related to formative summative assessment you know that final exams and we're getting some really good ideas where people are coming through you know the dreaded word we've talked about AI, using AI to, to look at language modification, look at how, how we can improve the assessment experience, and also just bringing in accessibility to those learners that are disengaged from normal assessments. And there's a lot of great stuff that we can do in we get engagement from the Department of Education, from from you know Ofqua, the regulator here in the UK, who are starting to like get, get take a real interest in what can be done now. So I think you know, from a, a, a trouble beginning, we're starting to see that innovation come through and, and look like what 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 next can we do? How can we improve? So, it's a, it's a it's a really good time to be involved in this area. And, and definitely, and, and people are kind of listening now, aren't they, Tim? I, just I'll come back to you in a second. So I, I want to just touch really on, and just as a follow up to that, David, just about the kind of yeah the the unintentional um, aspects of this kind of technology innovation and then digital divide because you you have quite a broad range of uh, of users in their kind of abilities and, and and settings do you think there's 
one of the the, the the downsides of us pushing towards further use of technology and innovation is that we're going to leave some people behind and, and kind of widen out the digital divide. Yes, I mean, great question. It, it is a, a, a tricky one. It's a, a real balancing act because as ever, when digital uh, progresses, it, it's a case of catch up in some areas and we, we cover all sorts of learner types we work with charities and not everyone has the laptop, the, the second device to monitor, to access these devices. So it even just having the, the Wi-Fi capacity to, to host an assessment. And it is a challenge because you, you can't just go all in on, on, on the digital front and, and on remote assessment. You've got to have that choice. And I think I, I mentioned before, it's like one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. But what we're starting to see now, we're seeing really good organisations, like Good Foundation, Good Things Foundation, Future Dot Now, and trying to pull together idea to help those more disadvantaged uh, learners and, and people in general in society by you know schemes where your mobile phone data you can harvest that data so that people in schools and colleges can access the data to sit in remote invigilation. The, the Department of Education obviously during the pandemic released a lot of de de uh, digital technology out to schools and colleges to support learners. So I mm. think, you know, it's always going to be a challenge and it, it, it's never going to be 100% everyone's able to access, but we've got to be mindful that we've got to support those kids can access it as well rather than just discount them and try and bring as many people on board as possible and, and utilise in different ways to, to do that. Yeah, and Tim, you wanted to just add something to that, I think. Yeah, it, it was just, David mentioned um, formative assessment. I'd be interested in kind of pulling all these view as well, but, but one of my feelings back to your kind of innovation question is that the need for resilience, everyone got, got a real nasty fright in the pandemic when you couldn't take summative exams. And, you know, I think some of the formative assessments found a bit wanting in terms of the ability to produce accurate grades through the formative assessment that had taken place. Just whether you think coming out of the pandemic, we're going to see that that blending of formative and summative assessment being more, um, being more tightly joined and whether that will push us into supervising formative assessment as well as, as, well as summative assessment. Well, do you think we'll we'll end up proctoring formative-based examinations Maybe, as well? Like a more structured formative, so you've got that in the bank in case exams can't take place. You know. Yeah, it's interesting. And Paul, you you got any thoughts on that one? I, th I think there's a chance. I guess we could do. I think I, I wouldn't rule anything out at the moment. I think um, one of the things that I, you talked about innovation and and I think someone said about you know re replicating the test centre. One of the discussions I had just back on that quickly was I had a discussion with the government department recently around they said well, remote proctoring how how good is it what's what's it about how's it going to work is it good is it as good as test center they said and they kept everything they kept doing was comparing it back to a test center yeah and I was saying the worst thing you do don't do that because you're going to tie yourself in knots you're not going to you're not going to get the answer I think you want if you keep trying to go back saying well, is it the same as this is it the same as that I said well no it's not um and and that's one of the sort of things I think it's that that that's a concern. I think potentially in, in the sector now is we can innovate, but people have this comfort level of the, of a person, of a human. And I know one of the I'm not going to mention names of companies on this call. Um, one of the um, fourteen companies I think recently last year actually stepped away from AI only. They actually said mm. actually it's all about the person. It's not about the tech. 
you know the tech supports the person the tech isn't the answer the person is the answer and it's interesting so we've just talked about maybe replicating test centers actually they've all actually said actually, that, that is the way we should be doing things and um i don't know if there's going to be a divide and obviously rory probably is, is much closer to this as one of the service providers or tech providers than i am but yeah where is that going to go you know are people going to start sort of putting themselves in tranches of actually it's person it's people first or is it is it tech first and i'm not quite sure what the answer is at the moment i think and depending who you talk to as a client i think the answer is going to be very very different as well because of that comfort level and i like really bad analogies sometimes you know tesla have self-driving cars how many of us would jump behind jump in one of those cars and not just sit there and put our hands up and go go on off you go and trust the tech that's going to actually going to, when you can see something you know, uh, you know something coming towards you you think is that tech going to work or is it not going to work and so i think that comfort level of having someone there is still going to be a huge part of any kind of technology and an assessment that people want that comfort level of a human wherever in that whatever stage of the process it's going to be a human's involved somewhere i think it's interesting you use tesla as a as an example there as uh, you know the fact that we can't kind of get away from the idea that someone would still have to take control of that that steering wheel and mm -hmm. and look after the car so that's possibly why live yeah there is still that kind of push for for live based uh invigilation um, and I'm, an AV, I'm sorry i was gonna say to him sorry just because I'm, I'm an airplane geek as well and i love i've got friends who are pilots and stuff and there's always this um challenge the pilot say well once you've taken off that you press a button and do nothing yeah. for nine hours and they sort of say well no but also yes a bit and but there's always a push saying well actually why do we need the pilot actually the human is the is the single point potentially the single point of failure there or is the most or is the part most likely to fail actually the technology the the, the automation of it is actually the bit that's really really um robust so why do you need the pilot anymore but again a lot of people would say you know it's, it's a comfort thing it's a thing that if the technology goes wrong someone is there and i don't i think that sort of idea is, is still applies to what we do as well the technology is brilliant and it, it will help us and innovate in a lot of ways but you still want that person to be there to say actually because you're dealing with a human at the end of the day at the other end you need someone yeah. to be able to to be there do you think then just to elaborate then in terms of a question for yourself because you you're obviously using multiple suppliers as part of your proctor in space do you think there's going to be a shift and change in the, the candidates may kind of want to actually pick rather than you saying you have to take it on you know with x platform they actually get to choose not only whether they can take it remotely or in a test center but they actually get to pick you know whether it's live whether it's you know ai based do you think there's going to be a change in that for you i think technically and be interested in rory in terms of using this from a tech providers as well but i think it's difficult because of the integrations that need to have potentially or the web browser and how this content loads and how it works with test drivers and that type of thing i think it's difficult for a candidate maybe to choose um you know proctor service a over proctor service b and to say i want to use a over b at the point of choosing i think what's going to be interesting is clients are going to be listening more to students we talked we started right at the beginning of this discussion about how do you listen to students what do they do and the choices that the clients make will potentially make their exam more or less successful, depending on what yeah. solution they have at the end of it. I don't think it's very difficult. I don't think at point of a point of registering for a qualification, you can say, "Oh, well, I use Tech A or Tech B." I think that's too. That's not going to happen. But it could be that they they choose whether they want to be live. You know, if if the industry accepts that you know, recording review is is secure as live, and and it's more about the candidate support and putting the technology to one side, you know, winding this out. Yeah, you know, does anyone else? If we're truly giving the candidate choice, 
and control, you know, could we could we move into the position where they could they could pick whether it's live or AI? Rory, what do you think? Yeah, so I mean, I I would say Tim that that uh, I would not yet be prepared to make that leap, right? Because um, I I do believe that there are you know, there are distinct differences between, uh, you know, the live and, and record and review methods in terms of, uh, of course, opportunities that candidates have to engage in behavior that then are, are not caught, you know, afterward. Again, uh, you know, mm. every organization kind of needs to review and, and feel out the best method, best, best fit. Um, but I would be, you know, I would be pretty hesitant for most programs to Kind of allow that live versus record and review uh, uh, decision and, and putting that onto the candidate. I mean, further, do, do they really even understand, uh, you know, what that means? And yeah. given all of our conversation uh, uh, earlier in this discussion about uh, the difficulty in getting uh, uh, them to, you know, read and comprehend communications generally, uh, I, I think that. Uh, that may be a step too far. I think the you know test center or or, or test hall versus you know remote invigilation decision, uh, that's 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 one that can be a little more um, uh, uh, intrinsic. But uh, that that may be a step too far. Um, and just you know, I'll, I'll just to build on one other thing that uh, you know has been mentioned here with regard to the technology and and tech versus human elements, so on and so forth. Right. I, I think uh, really, again, as, as one of the providers in this space where we have continued to um, convey our focus and uh, indeed, Paul, uh, again, without mentioning, uh, uh, you know, organization names, what we saw very clearly um, uh, from that particular group and, and their announcement, um, it's not necessarily one or the other, but it really is, it goes back to the the technology being an input to the human and the human proctor then making that final decision in that interaction with the candidate and that being kind of central versus um, the technology directing decisions. Um, and that continues to be our philosophy. Again, I know it's not the philosophy of all, all providers out in the market and some of them have really you know, well-reasoned arguments behind what they do. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, 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 I won't, uh, I won't go at that, uh, whatsoever, but really, um, for us, that's been, that's been central is, is all the tech in the world. Fantastic. Let's you let's leverage those elements that, um, that can be well proven out to a incredibly high degree of consistency, uh, right. Just like we would do with any other kind of statistical psychometric approach approach in our assessments. Um, but then ultimately allowing that to be an input to uh, a human-based decision. Yeah, yeah. Okay, David, you want to just add in there as well? Yes, thanks. Um, it, I think as well, the learner got a lot of power to, to drive this argument forward as well. Mm. I think a few years ago, one of the challenges we had was with teachers who didn't want to embrace digital tools in the classroom, such things that, you know, the conversation about should a mobile phone be allowed in classroom or not. And, and what, what the change is, is the learners are, are growing up now with digital tools around them. You know, the, the days of if I wanted to tile my bathroom, I've got a, a, a bookcase behind me, I've got to 
Colin DIY manual that I would, back in the day I would look through to work out how to tile. Now you would look on YouTube and watch YouTube mm. video to see how it's done. And that's how learners, young learners are coming through now using digital devices constantly to learn, to engage. The push to remote learning through the pandemic has moved that even quicker. And, and you know, from their point of view now, you're going to have a generation of learners growing up and think, well, I do my, my learning on an on, on online platform. I do all, all, all different things online where I've got to then go back to a paper-based assessment to, to finish it off. It just seems archaic. Why mm. can't I do it in, in my home, home like I do my studying? So I think the learner's got that power to drive things forward and we'll, we'll see that change driven by the generation coming through now who are used to, you know, engaging everything digital. And that includes remote invigilation. That includes all the different formats that we've discussed today and I, I think that that will take a little bit of time but i think we'll see that shift coming in the next few years yeah one more view on this paul and then we, i just want to talk briefly about cheating sure and it was just to build on that really what um, david was saying that i think david's completely right that generations now are, are, are learning with devices learning with tech um, but one of the last things that's going to change probably in terms of assessment in terms of technology in, in that assessment is probably the school exams that we see in the uk so GCSEs and A-levels, those school leaving exams or further education exams are all predominantly still done on paper, sitting in halls with 200 people um, because it's one exam that's sat at nine o'clock in the morning. There's one option to do it. That's it. And and there's a we know that, you know, some of the people who have those exams are moving across and starting to look at how you introduce remote proctoring or other technology into that. But it's probably going to be the one, the last type of exam to move. But it's probably the first exam that those kids are going to do that is what they would deem to be high stakes so you've got yeah. this disconnect of learning online learning with tech being shoved put in a hall for two hours three hours to write on a, a chemistry exam or a maths exam and then back to being learning on tech again so there's a disconnect there and how those school exams move in the next probably three five seven years is going to be interesting i think well, I think, and Tim, you mentioned about, you know, when you were talking about change informative, um, yeah, I think that's probably where, you know, the other area where we're seeing a lot of change is the idea of these big, you know, uh, um, computer adaptive based formative uh, processes uh, coming into play and, and being used. Um, th there is more of that kind of technology going on there, isn't there? Um, yeah, and I think as well that, you know, just in, Kind of consumer society there's a lot of investment and energy going into kind of identity management and that that sense of being a trusted person in different scenarios and the organization that you're buying services from knowing certain things about you you, you know it, there's gonna be a challenge for the regulators and the assessment industry to say well you, you know how much information is it appropriate to assume about the candidate and how much should they they tell you um and also just think you know going back to Roy's point about um Kind of validity of exams and security you know there's probably a role for the credentialing part of the assessment industry to start to give kind of assurance levels around qualifications and how certain they, they were that it was taken in a robust way and the right candidates took the right exam at the right time so i think it's, it's back to that whole ecosystem disruption that, that different parts of the industry will solve different parts of the problem yeah yeah uh, okay so the last thing I want to kind of finish on just, is just looking at cheating. And Rory, as the psychometrician in, in the room, um, uh, I'm kind of interested in your views on this one. Um, obviously, remote invigilation was developed as a means of, you know, as preventing item harvesting, but also cat, 
um, you know, monitoring students so they don't cheat during the assessment process. Is this because there is a kind of reliance on question types like multiple choice, which I'm not going to say they're easy to cheat, but there there's a kind of there's a cheating kind of world around multiple choice. You know, are we going to see you know is moving away from those and into things like performance based testing, and therefore getting away from the need to have things like remote proctored assessments? How do you see that future playing out? Now, now you really want to get me in trouble with folks from the industry, don't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, without without wading into that wonderfully fraught uh, debate about, um, you know, efficacy and fidelity, uh, uh, and of course, uh, how that pertains to some of the classic uh, uh, psychometric characteristics uh, uh, with MCQs and such, um, really, uh, I, I would say let's take a step back and, and think about the various types of cheating behaviors, right? Yeah. Because um, we have the classic um, trying to prevent the use of pre-knowledge. Yeah. We also have this issue of uh, fundamentally bad actors who are coming in trying to extract IP. Uh, and the ways in which um, those are, are are defeated, of course, uh, you know, have, have different characteristics. So um, as we move to new uh, assessment types, which again, uh, uh, you know, I, that is one of the things that just so excites me about remote invigilation because it does open up so many possibilities yeah. um, uh, and, and allow my just a, a brief digression for a moment. Um, you know, I have... Uh, I have a bunch of nephews, and basically all of them um, have, you know, some type of, uh, you know, Oculus or some type yeah. of VR headset, right, for the endless gaming that they do. Um, you know, when we think about the uh, the fact that these, you know, this set of hardware is becoming more and more common, especially in that generation uh, as they're coming up, you know, thinking about the possibilities for all these things that we've talked about in terms of virtual reality, augmented reality, um, other types of immersive testing, uh, it really does open up um, the options potentially um, when we don't have to talk about deploying a VR headset to every test center around the globe uh, mm -hmm. and, and doing so in a variety of different countries. Now, uh, I'll, I'll leave aside perhaps the uh, additional widening of the digital divide that that might create. But um, what does excite me is with the possibility of introducing new assessments, um, I think it does limit perhaps things such as um, the, uh, the use of pre-knowledge, right? Uh, fundamentally, if uh, memorizing a set of answers or memorizing a set of questions from a, a brain dump, uh, it, it may not have the same repercussions. But I don't think that it negates the need for some security around that process. Of course, there's always uh, there will be the continued need, no matter what, to validate that someone is who they say they are, such mm -hmm. that you ensure that you're giving the qualification or credential um, to the person that uh, that you believe you're talking to. Um, but then there's also uh, the possibility of um, you know collusion still at hand that would have to be monitored. Uh, and other, uh, again, it, it, other use of, of sources that may still be a sensitivity. So uh, mm. I don't think it will uh, do away 
uh, with uh, the need for those security measures. But I think when we do get into a, a mode where we're, we're talking about newer and uh, more novel assessment types, it does reposition the conversation because uh, you know the risk of pre-knowledge, the risk of um, extraction of IP becomes very different. Uh, and you're fundamentally looking at targeting different types of, of potential aberrant behavior. And I think it's always been the, the conversation, hasn't it, about moving from paper to, to digital, moving from test centers to remote. The, the risks change, don't they? And you know, we kind of adapt with the technology. And it will be interesting to see if the future, I, I know we can have a whole conversation about the future of assessment in the metaverse or something like that. That would be, a, uh, I think I'd have to read up on it a little bit more than uh, than that now. But um, yeah, I think what we've seen is there is definitely a flavor around remote assessment that yeah, we've accepted and embraced this new change and revolution. We've let it into our homes quite literally. Um, and, you know, our, I suppose our, our eyes and our belly have, have kind of widened to the idea of, of future innovation and, 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 and change. We haven't quite got over all the, the humps that come with digital assessment, uh, remote assessment, sorry. Uh, but we, I think we've made some pretty, uh, pretty brilliant uh, inroads in there. Well, let's wrap it up there. Um, we're out of time now, but thank you, everyone, for uh, taking part in the session. I'm really sorry that we couldn't have had this conversation at bet. Um, I do guarantee, though, that because of the audio within the the, the, the David Jill, uh, the testament to this, that, you know, it was just impossible to have an actual conversation, uh, wasn't it, in uh, the actual conference? So I think doing this through a, um, uh, an audio cast has been a, a lot of better idea. So... Thank you, everyone, and um, we look forward to continuing the debate at the conference. Thanks, Thank you, Tim. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Thank you all. This has been an e-assessment association podcast. You can subscribe to these podcasts through your standard podcasting channels, and you can also find out more information on our website, which is e-assessment.com. You can join the association for free and learn about all our amazing activities in terms of research, awards, conferences, news and information. Thank you and I hope to see you back soon.